Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, you sent your son, the stone the builders rejected, to be the capstone of your church. We pray that you bless the words of today's sermon, that Jesus, our ever-living capstone, may always be marvelous in our eyes. Amen. We are in a series that begins at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we're going to work our way all the way through Isaiah 53, verse 12. And in our first sermon, we saw that Jesus uh, has the knowledge because he's true God to bring about success. And the success is specifically your salvation. And as true God, he knew exactly how to do that. And as true God, who is using the full powers of his godhood again, not holding them back, He's ruling over all salvation, over all creation to keep you in your salvation. Now, in the sermon prior to today's sermon in Isaiah 52 verses 14 through 15, we saw that he suffered inhumane treatment. But that whole entire point of it was to lift you up and make you a child of God. And so we arrive at our third sermon in this series, as recorded in Isaiah 53 verses one through three, which tell us. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root from dry ground, he had no attractiveness and no majesty. When we saw him, nothing about his appearance made us desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man who knew grief, who was well acquainted with suffering, like someone whom people cannot bear to look at, he was despised, and we thought nothing of him. This is the word of our Lord. Here in a second, we're going to get into who has believed our news or our report. But we want to look at the second part of that. And upon whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the Old Testament Hebrews way of talking about how God in his power actually rules to bring you into and keep you in his grace. Who sees all of God's power at work? And that's why people don't believe the news that even the prophet Jeremiah can lament about 700 years before Christ's crucifixion and everything he's done to save you. Who could see the power of the Lord in a baby lying in a manger? Who could see the power of the Lord hanging naked as he is put a nail to one of the cruelest instruments human beings have invented to torture another person to death? And actually, this text is quoted on Monday by Jesus himself, Monday of Holy Week, the last Monday that Jesus is alive before he dies and then again rises again. Now, in that context, uh, some Greeks come up to the apostle Philip and says, say, we would like to talk to the Lord. We, we would like to see Jesus. And, and when he brings them to Jesus, Jesus launches into a sermon. We just want to focus on a little bit of that recorded in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 38. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, this is the reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Allow me to interject here for a minute. Jesus is the spokesman for the Trinity. Whenever in the Old Testament God is speaking, you should assume it is the pre-incarnate Christ. That's Christ before he took on human flesh. This is the third time in all of Scripture that we can be absolutely confident that God the Father is speaking. The first is at Jesus' baptism. The second is on the Mount of Transfiguration 
and about a month prior to, te- to today's uh, to, to the text I just read. And the third is right here. So God the Father is speaking. And you would think that's it. Wow, everybody in Jerusalem who heard that voice, the arm of the Lord had been revealed. What power? They must believe the apostles' message. They must believe it when, they, when the apostles come back and say he's risen, right? You would think that. Well, let's continue our reading. The crowd standing there heard it and said, it thundered. Others said, an angel talked to him. Now, if a supernatural being that's incapable of sinning like an angel says that, that would be proof enough. But why lessen it? It was God. Jesus answered, this voice was not for my sake, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be thrown out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd answered him, we've heard from the scriptures that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, The light will be with you just a little while longer. Keep on walking while you have the light, so the darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Jesus spoke these words and then went away and was hidden from them. Even though Jesus had done so many miraculous signs in their presence, they still did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Many of the most devout, militant, God-hating atheists who make it their personal mission to try to destroy the faith of any Christian who they view often as bumpkins, they they turn around and, and they will say they will say things like if God really exists then let him stop doing the very uh, natural laws that he established that we can depend on and, and be subject to my command and then I'll believe in him whatever their little miracle that they're asking for is but that's a lie. The people that day heard the voice of the Lord. Or think how when Jesus dies on Good Friday and all those people come out of their graves, did that stop the Sanhedrin from believing in him? Or even start, did that start them? No, they refused. Even supernatural miracles like that will not convert a person. The things of this world will not draw a person to God. Too many charlatan pastors miss this and they they promise people things like material possessions and riches if they follow the Lord. But that's not how the Lord wants to draw us in for this world will perish. And so our text continues at verse two. Indeed, he grew up as a sapling before him. That would be before the Lord. I have a tree in the one corner of my yard and in an opposite corner one day we had a little sapling show up. Turns out being it's those trees' roots. It's something like that. God had promised that the Savior would be a descendant of Abraham through Isaac. Then to Isaac, he promised it would be his through his son Jacob. Through Jacob, the promise was given to Judah. We fast forward ahead to King David. And then it seems the line of David goes out. All of a sudden... A thousand years later, this guy named Joseph and this gal named Mary, who are both descendants of David if we trace their lineages. In fact, we're told, and just as a root from dry ground. It's kind of neat when you see a sapling show up so far away from the original tree itself, but, but then during a drought from dry ground where there's no water to nourish it. 
and said, Joseph was not a king, even though he was a descendant. And Joseph isn't Jesus's biological father at all, right? And, and so if we understand Luke properly, it says Jesus was the son of Joseph, so it was thought. And then he talks about the son of Heli. It seems that what Luke is telling us is Jesus's genealogy is only with Mary, but he's trying to trace it through the next nearest male, which would be Mary's father. And we see that Jesus is a descendant of David. But Mary was not a princess, nor was Joseph Jesus's adoptive father, if you will, the man who filled that vocation very beautifully. No. Jesus is born in a barn. In fact, we're told, and there is no form for his advantage, and there is no splendor, we'd add, for his advantage. Now, let me restate this in, in, in good English. There's nothing in his appearance that would be a benefit for him. There's nothing, uh, no splendor like kingly robes. He's, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes of a regular baby and actually placed into a manger when he's born. And when he dies... Yeah, now, the only thing that the guards have of his property to divide up are the clothes that are on his back. So there's nothing splendorous. Nobody had sat on David's throne for uh, over 500 or nearly 500 years. But when it says that there's no form for his advantage, some people think that means that Jesus was ugly. So ugly that he fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down, faced first. That's not what it's saying. But it's also saying people wouldn't look at him and say, wow, there's a handsome guy and be attracted to him. In European ancestry, they often paint Jesus as this very handsome, blonde haired, blue eyed guy. Well, we know that's not accurate. Jesus was a Jewish person and other cultures paint him according to what their culture is. But he was just an average looking Joe. Many years ago. It was about 17 to 20 years ago. I remember watching where, by the way, the Shroud of Tehran is not from Jesus. But uh, I think they claimed they got DNA from that. But, but they claimed that they were able to figure out what Jesus looked like. And then uh, this big program, they, they show a model of what he would look like. And it seems to me they went out of their way to form his mouth and stuff to make him look like, well, somebody that we would think of as, as kind of being pretty foolish if we just by their appearance it's not that. It's just that when people looked at Jesus, they saw an average Joe. There was no cult of personality. He didn't have any special speech tricks like Hitler did to draw people in. He was an average Joe. And what he had, because he was true God, but it was hidden, was the word of God to attract people. More on that in a minute. And so we're told, and when we're seeing him, then there is no appearance so that we do not delight in him. Have you ever seen like that person that... that uh, you know, they're, they're, they're constantly asking you for money or something. You go, oh, there's Billy Bob. I hope he doesn't see me. That's often in our own hearts how we act when it comes to the word of God and, and to seeing Jesus through the word of God because we go, I don't want to have my sins exposed. I don't know about you, but my sinful nature does not like the beating it gets. It literally gets killed and drowned in the blood of Christ every time we come to the word. So it is that people often would turn their heads in shame. Oh, that's the Messiah, but I don't want anything to do with him, right? All of that was for a reason. As we ask that question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? He lacks any worldly glory to draw us to him. But there's a reason for that. No cult of personality, no extra neat speech tricks or psychology tricks. And the reason for that is spelled out in another place where this little section of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10 verses 16 through 17. But not, obey, not all obeyed the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who believed our message? So then faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes through the word of Christ. There was nothing in Jesus' appearance to draw us to him. No worldly glory, no extra handsomeness or anything, but that's because God wanted us to be drawn to the good shepherd by the faith he gives us. God sends messengers to us with his word. Through that word, God sends the Holy Spirit to create a new person that is engrafted to Christ and clings to him. If you look at the tricks that cults use and things like that, you'll always find uh, that person has ways that they manipulate people. Jesus didn't do that because God wants us to be attracted to him, not for earthly uh, splendor and earthly possessions and things like that. He wants us to be attracted to him by the faith he gives us. He literally has to take and put a new person in our hearts. That new person is engrafted to Christ and that new person now clings to the promise that guy on the cross suffering a criminal's death is no mere man. That is the God man. He withholds. He he doesn't use all the power of his Godhood and yet he does in order to save you and suffer hell for you so that you are now saved so that you are now God's child. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To lack any worldly glory to draw us to him so that we are drawn by the faith that God gives us. Now, in connection with that, we're told in verse three of today's text, he is considered as having little worth and rejected by men. This just screams out one of the passages of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter two, verse four, where we're told, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. It used to be you would take and you would quarry out your stones and that one that seemed to be the best 90 degree angle, that is the one that would become your foundation stone as you started to build two walls together. The one that was truly a perfect 90 because he was perfectly holy because he's true God. People like the Sanhedrin took a look at that and went, nah, that's not the kind of wall I want and chucked it out. And in our natural condition, we are born with a sinful nature, a sinful nature that cannot be holy unless God intervenes. And in that sinful nature, that's not the kind of savior we want, is it? We want a savior that will give us food on our table magically. We want a savior that'll let us sleep in day after day, week after week, Never mind that that would be very harmful for our bodies as we become lazy. We want a savior who will give us worldly riches. We want a savior that'll put us in charge, not that we have any responsibility, but that we can boss people around and tell them how to serve us. In other words, what our sinful nature wants is somebody to just hand us what are considered the luxuries of this world. But if our Savior did that, we would burn in hell for all eternity. He became the Savior that we actually need. And he would suffer rejection. And the first reason why he suffers rejection is we've covered that he had no physical appearance. But the main reason for that is because the world is not looking for a spiritual savior who gives them eternal life, who gives them the new heavens and the new earth where we won't have physical ailments. They want it now and they want glory and worldly riches. Our text continues at verse three. Having been known by grief filled sickness. I struggled how to translate this Hebrew word. But there are times I was recently talking with a friend and and I said, you know, I used to think that I just uh, had an air conditioning curse because everywhere I've ever lived, I've always had air conditioning problems. And it just turns out being that air conditioning doesn't work as well as the other furnace does, right? 
But what this is saying is pretty much it's almost like if you were to personify uh, problems uh, that, that even can make you st- uh, not physically sick, but ill to your stomach, just grief filled stuff. It seems like that if you were to personify, it seems like it was always hunting Jesus down. Think about, for example, that the last time Joseph, his adoptive father, if you will, the man who beautifully filled that role, is mentioned in all the New Testament, is at age 12 when they leave Jesus behind at the temple. You don't have to be too brilliant to figure out that Joseph had died before Jesus goes out and is baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus knows the grief of this world. Think about knowing, even as a child, when his parents have to flee to Egypt to save his life and potentially their own. Think about how Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And when you are suffering physical pain, do not kid yourself. He was flogged by those those cat o' nine tails, which would have ripped the flesh off his back. He had that false cross that was made of thorns dug into his skin. And yes, he had those nails. It seems driven uh, in the Greek word would be wrists, uh, would be hands. But right about here, he had those nails driven through and he hung on that cross. Your savior, whom you are intimately connected to in a mysterious way, a spiritual way that defies science. Your savior knows suffering. He knows the emotional torments. He knows the physical torments. And that's a comfort for you because he would not allow you to suffer that agony when you're suffering unless he had a plan for your overall well-being. Or it may not even be for your well-being, not for your detriment, though, but for your neighbor or somebody else's well-being. And so our text continues. And like one whom faces are hidden from, he's considered as having little worth and we did not value him. The world rejects him because it's not the savior they want. They see a guy hanging on the cross and they go, he got a criminal's death. Maybe he was part of a railroad job. Who cares? We miss the fact that that is God's suffering for your and my sins so that he can make us God's children. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To suffer the rejection of God that men naturally have in their hearts. Human beings do. He suffered that rejection. And that's a comfort for you and I. While at the same time it stings us to the very core. Because you and I in our natural condition reject him. He's not the savior our sinful nature wants. Because our sinful nature is a slave to the devil. And can only do the devil's will. This is why he suffers it, so that he could even atone for that for you. And then he sends the Holy Spirit in your heart to give you faith. So we ask that question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? We understand that so that no worldly glory would falsely draw us in. So he was to lack any worldly glory to draw us into him. What draws us in is when he sends messengers to us to share the good news of salvation in him through which the Holy Spirit creates our faith and then sustains our faith. So it would be our new person that God implants in our heart that is attached to Christ that draws us to him and keeps us there by coming to that word. And to suffer the rejection of God that human beings naturally have in their hearts so so that he would even atone for your and mine uh, rejecting him so that our sins are forgiven and we now belong in him. Let me wrap this sermon up again by reading where the first verse of our text is quoted in Romans 10 verses 16 through 17. But not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who believed our message? So then faith comes from hearing the message and the message comes through the word of Christ. Amen. 
And now, brothers and sisters, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen.